Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. My name's Pete, and uh, I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. We are, uh, this summer, each week taking one classic Bible story, one of those uh, stories that's found its way into the collective consciousness of Western civilization, and we're coming at these stories not merely as Sunday school lessons for kids, but as a way of seeking to find what we would call the whole gospel in the whole Bible. So in other words, we're asking how might the Spirit of God want to use these well-known flannel graph tales to invite his church into uh, more, more deeply into the life of Jesus and his kingdom. So, so far we've looked at the story of Adam and Eve, and we've looked at the story of Cain and Abel, and this morning we're going to be looking at the story of Noah and the ark, which is found in Genesis chapters uh, 6 through 9. Um, the story of Noah is a familiar one to most of us, even those who aren't very familiar uh, with Christianity or the Bible. I don't know what the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of the Noah story is. Maybe it's an image from when you were a kid at Sunday school, and maybe the image of Noah and all the happy animals was painted on uh, the wall of the church classroom. Kangaroos and elephants and flamingos all cheerfully lining up uh, to board the great boat. By the way, kids, there's a bingo page in your uh, booklet this morning. You might get lucky if you pay close attention. Um, So maybe a picture... um, Childhood preschool or Sunday school imagery. Uh, others of you might picture Russell Crowe in the movie that came out a few years ago, or uh, maybe Steve Carell as a modern day Noah in Evan Almighty. Um, maybe for you, Noah is one of those stories that represents the untenable and absurd claims of the Christian faith. Like, how could Christians really be so ignorant, so gullible, that they would actually believe that a story like this really took place? That God flooded the whole world and two of every kind of animal, every animal survived on a giant floating zoo. Um, maybe you have some questions about this story. Um, for others of us, maybe it's a heartwarming story of God graciously saving Noah and his family. And for others, maybe it's a disturbing story of God wrathfully destroying the earth. Now, for thousands of years now, biblical scholars have been debating how this story and others like it are meant to be read. Um, Some have argued that this story is meant to be taken literally, as in these events actually happened in human history exactly as described in the biblical texts. Others have said that these stories don't need to be understood in strictly historical terms in order to convey important and timeless truth and meaning about the world, about God, and about humanity. And there's hundreds of other perspectives as well. But for now, I just want to say this, that there are lots of people that think that to take the Bible seriously means that it has to be read 
literally. And I know what they mean when they say that, but I want to tell you that I'm much more interested in reading the Bible literately than literally. To read the Bible literally means to pay attention to the genre of literature you're reading, who the author is, who the original audience was, when and where it was written, and so forth. So to say that you take the whole Bible literally may sound good to some people, but if you're going to take the Bible seriously, then you can't always take it literally. In fact, there are many parts of the Bible that aren't meant to be read literally at all. For example, one-third of the Bible is poetry. It's written in the genre of poetry. That's an undisputed fact. And poetry, by nature, is meant to be read non-literally. So when Isaiah 55.12 says that all the trees of the field were clapped their hands, if you wanted to disprove the Bible to a literalist, all you have to say is, see, the Bible isn't true. Trees don't have hands. We understand poetic language is meant to be taken non-literally. Or when the Gospel of John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we know that doesn't mean that Mary really did have a little lamb. So I want to encourage you to take the Bible seriously and to come to this text and others like it, remembering that as biblical scholar John Walton puts it, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. As modern day readers, we need to understand it is for us. It contains God's inspired and authoritative word for us today, but it wasn't written to us originally. And so in other words, if we're going to understand the meaning of a story like Noah's Ark, we first need to ask what it meant to those who originally wrote and received it. So how did the first hearers of this story understand its meaning? The first thing that we need to know is that it was common practice in the ancient world to use a historical event and to retell it in a figurative way in order to communicate a particular message or meaning to your hearers. So Dr. Tremper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar at Westmont College, argues that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are what we might call theological history. Theological history. Historical accounts, there are narrated from a uniquely theological perspective. Meaning the storyteller isn't simply just trying to recount events that have occurred in human history, but the storyteller is trying to tell of that account through a particular lens designed to help us understand who the God of the Bible really is. 
So Longman, along with many other biblical scholars throughout history, would say that Genesis 1, for example, isn't to be understood as God creating the world in six literal 24-hour days, but that the author is using the known analogy of a six-day work week to describe something about the meaning of God's creation. Longman would also say that the flood narrative and the story of Noah uses hyperbolic language about a likely real regional flood to communicate important theological truths about what God is really like. So, in other words, flood stories were not rare in the ancient world. In lots of cultures, the Babylonians, the Africans, the Mesopotamians, flood stories were a very typical storytelling device, including uh, most famously the Epic of Gilgamesh, which in many ways bears striking, striking similarities to the Genesis story. So when you read the story of Noah and the flood, it's not unusual at that time, for someone to explain things by using a story of a massive flood on the earth. So this means that we have good biblical and historical evidence that the flood story in Genesis is what we would call a theological interpretation of an actual historical event that occurred on the Mesopotamian plain. But... Today, we're not going to try to dig any deeper into that to find out the exact nature or date of this historical flood. So what I would want to say is that if you're getting hung up on some of those details, those are good questions to ask, and you're definitely not the first one to ask them. So chase those down. But for this morning, I want to invite you to engage this account simply as a story. One of the most famous and enduring human stories that has ever been told, and a story that contains deep and profound layers of meaning and truth about the world and about God. So, the story begins in Genesis chapter 6, if you'd like to turn your Bible there. We'll start in verse 5. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. We'll pause there for a moment because that's a pretty extreme statement that's made here. That every inclination of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The storyteller is clearly trying to get our attention. Sometimes the biblical authors, like I said, use hyperbole or what we might just call exaggeration in order to drive a point home. The author simply wants, us to, con wants to convey to us that things have gotten pretty bad on earth and humanity is the root cause of it. This thing called evil, which started way back in the garden when the serpent convinced a woman that God couldn't be trusted, that now, that thing called evil has now spread like a virus, 
from the woman to her husband, from the woman and her husband to their two children, who we looked at last week, and from this family to the greater society of humans, now every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. We learned something about the nature of what the Bible calls sin, that it often starts small, but it quickly goes viral. So how does God respond then when he looks at the world that he's made and these people that he has created in his image and likeness and he sees corruption, evil, injustice, wickedness, violence, and oppression? In verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Again, very strong language. God regrets ever making humans in the first place as he sees how horribly they're treating one another, how violent and vile they've become. And so he determines that he's going to put an end to it. That he's going to wipe all people off the face of the earth. And soon we'll find out that the way he's going to do that is by sending a great flood. So here we are on page five of your Bible. And this is a book that is supposedly about a good, loving, forgiving compassionate, merciful God. And it seems like he's kind of freaking out. He's so upset that he's not only going to kill all the humans, but also all the animals, the chickens and the alligators, the monkeys and the giraffes. This seems pretty extreme, if you ask me. But again, we have to understand How would first readers have heard this? And as I said, almost every single ancient culture has a flood story. And in those flood stories, they really, as ancient people, didn't have a category for what we call natural disasters. They thought of them as supernatural disasters. In pretty much all of these ancient flood stories, the flood is a sign that their god or the gods are angry. This was a very common way of seeing the world and interpreting its events. A flood or a famine or a fire breaks out and they assume that somebody has done something to anger and upset the gods. And so the idea of God sending a disaster in response to human wrongdoing wouldn't have been a strange or offensive idea to the first readers at all. But here's what would have gotten their attention. We hear God saying that he's going to send a flood to wipe out humanity, and we assume that that's coming from a place of anger, from a place of hostility, from a place of hatred or wrath, that God is angry and so he's going to wipe out humanity. But that, if you're paying attention, is not how the author describes God's emotional state. 
We might read God's words as angry, but what we're told in verse 6 is that God's heart was deeply troubled. He's not mad. He's sad. He's not enraged. He's grieved. These human beings that he created to bear his image in the world, that he invited to walk closely in relationship with him, they've rebelled against him. And they're no longer living in tune with how he made the world. And so God looks and sees that the earth is full of violence and hatred and greed and injustice. Humans who God loves are being abused and taken advantage of and tortured and killed. And God can't bear to watch it anymore. So in this flood story, God isn't angry. He's heartbroken. And that is different. So let's read what happens next. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So God tells Noah that he's going to send this great flood. But he tells Noah that he wants him to build this huge boat so that Noah and Noah's wife and their whole family might be saved from the flood. So even now, we have this glimpse that this flood story is again different than the other flood stories that would have been known. The idea is that God hasn't entirely given up on humanity, that he hasn't abandoned the world that he's made, but that he's got a plan. And he has to deal with the evil, the corruption, the violence, the injustice. He can't stand to watch people who he loves continue 
to kill and to hurt one another. So the plan is to start over. And the idea is that Noah and his family are going to reboot humanity. They're going to be Adam and Eve 2.0. And so God gives Noah instructions, and Noah does everything just as God commanded him. And sure enough, God does everything he said he was going to do. The waters come. The earth is flooded. And every living thing that wasn't on board the ark is destroyed. Noah and his family, safe and saved inside the ark. Eventually, the waters dry up and the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And after a few tests with a dove, Noah finds that there's dry land and he and his family come out of the ark. A new humanity, a new world, a new creation. They're born again and a new life begins. The very first thing that we see Noah and his family do upon exiting the ark is to construct an altar, a place for them to bring their offerings and sacrifices, their worship and their gratitude to the God who saved them. We'll pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 20, Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. I wonder if you heard a familiar phrase there in God's statement. Remember that phrase from the very beginning of the story, that every inclination of the human heart is evil. Well, God says it here again. Humanity is still corrupt, still depraved, still full of sin, still prone towards violence and oppression and rebellion. In fact, not too long after this moment, Noah wants wine, so he goes and plants a vineyard, and then he drinks of it, gets drunk, passes out in his tent, all kinds of sketchy things happen. By the way, if you want a glass of wine in that day and age, it takes a little while if you're starting with grape seeds. But violence and sin and corruption and rebellion are still there. So God says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, I will never destroy the earth again. So he repeats that phrase from chapter 6. Every inclination of the human heart is evil. But this time, he precedes that phrase with two very important world-changing words. Even though. 
even though, even though humanity is still sinful to the core, I will not destroy them. Even though is the language of grace. Even though is a vocabulary of mercy. Even though you deserve the consequences and the penalty of your sin. Even though you deserve to be punished and wiped out. I'm not going to do it. And so here's another thing that's so interesting in the Noah story. In most flood stories, the gods are angry and they wipe everybody out. But the Noah story ends with this particular God saying, I'm not going to do that again. That you don't need to live in fear of my judgment or wrath or punishment. I still love you. I still want you. And I long to live at peace with you. Now this would have been a radical, brand new idea in that time. The gods in every other story were angry and irate, crushing and killing everybody and taking joy in it. And so the story about a flood, again, would have been familiar, but a story about a flood that ends with a divine being that's full of grace and mercy who longs to live in harmony with his creation, that is a different kind of God. Even though you deserve to be wiped out and destroyed, I'm not going to do it. And so the reader is left with a question then. If God isn't going to make humanity pay for their sin, if God isn't going to hold humanity accountable for the violence and the injustice, the corruption and the wickedness of their ways, then what's going to happen? Will sin continue to go and to thrive and to spread virally forever? without any form of consequence or punishment, or in other words, where's the justice? We love the idea of a merciful, gracious, and forgiving God, but we know that we also, as we talked about last week, need a God who is just, a God who will make things right. And so if God says he's not going to pour out his wrath upon humanity, well then what about sin? As we read on in the story, God makes a covenant with his people. A new promise, a new plan. We'll pick it up in chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
When I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all life. So again, this is written for us but not to us. For those to whom it was originally written, the movement of stars and other celestial phenomenons were viewed as supernatural events or as heavenly writing. They were signs or omens placed in the sky by gods which cryptically communicated God's plans. This is actually the foundation and rationale for astrology, which was invented by the Mesopotamians. The rainbow was one of those signs that ancient people looked to, saw it placed in the, heaven, in the heavens by gods, and like other celestial phenomena, the rainbow was viewed either as a good or a bad omen, depending on the situation. And so the sign of God's covenant with Noah is a rainbow. But here's what's interesting. The Hebrew word that's translated as rainbow, is the word keshet. And the most literal translation of the word keshet isn't rainbow, but it's actually bow. Not like ribbon that you tie on a package, but like a bow and an arrow. In the King James or the ESV or other translations of this passage, it doesn't say rainbow, it says bow. So in verse 13, it says that God will set his bow in the clouds. So here's the picture. This thing isn't loaded, by the way. At the end of the story, God takes his bow, representing his hand of consequence, his hand of punishment, and he puts it down. He sets it in the clouds. And it's not just God giving a sign that he's never going to flood the earth again. There's actually even something more significant happening here. When you shoot a bow and an arrow, which direction does the bow face? The round part points towards the target. When God sets his bow in the clouds, which direction does it face? Not down towards the earth, but up towards the heavens. And so God says, when you see my bow in the sky, you can know that I will remember this covenant. That my bow is not turned towards humanity, but it's turned towards myself. Meaning instead of pouring out his wrath upon humans for our sin and our violence, that God is prepared to take an arrow in our place. 
that he would be the one who would absorb our destruction. Isn't that beautiful? So when Jesus dies on the cross, the gospel writers tell us that another astronomical sign occurred that day. In Luke 23, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. When Jesus died on the cross, shots were fired into heaven. God himself in Christ absorbed our sin, our guilt, and our shame. He points the bow towards himself and he dies for the sins of the world. The love of God is a bow turned backwards. Which is not only how God saves us from sin and judgment, but it's also how he calls us to live as those who are saved. Meaning the shape of God's love is not only something we are to be the recipients of, but it's also designed to shape the way we love one another in the world. Listen to Paul write later in the book of Philippians to a group of early Christ followers. He says, have the same mind that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, or leveraged for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, turning the bow back towards his own life. And Paul says that's how Jesus is and that's how Jesus loves and as Jesus' family, as Jesus' body, as Jesus' disciples and Jesus' people here on earth have the same mind. Exhibit the same cross-shaped or cruciform love that Jesus showed by taking on our nature and accepting our death on the cross. So Paul uses all of this language as an illustration of his main point in the verse above, which is, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is an invitation to cruciform living. That the family of God, the body of Christ, that the church of Jesus 
would be known for our cross-shaped love. That we would be known as those who turn the bow, not towards our enemies in the world, but are willing to have the bow turned towards us in Christ-like, sacrificial, cross-shaped love. Jesus did not die on the cross to create a self-centered, self-focused, self-serving people. His death on the cross was about creating a new humanity, a new human community born again in him, exemplified by his church that lives in accordance with his cruciform, humble, self-sacrificial love. And so you know that as a church, we're in an ongoing season of lament over the historic and current racism and injustice against people of color. And specifically for those of us who are white American Christians, might I suggest that the invitation towards cruciform love begins by acknowledging the reality of systems of racism, confessing our complicity in them, lamenting with a broken heart, and repenting of our apathy and our indifference, and then doing everything in our power to learn how to love with the cross-shaped, cruciform love of Christ. In other words, get very comfortable with a bow that's turned back on ourself. Ready to lay down our comfort. Ready to sacrifice our privilege. Ready to suffer if need be. Compelled by the love of Jesus. And if we are willing to follow Christ into these kinds of places, then what we're going to find is that this vision is going to reshape every part of our lives. Everything's going to change. The way that we see the world the way that we treat those who are different than us, the way we run our businesses, the way we cast our ballots, the way we use our money. We no longer see our things and our stuff or even our life out of self-interest, which is the way of the world. But we see ourselves in everything we have, everything we've been given. And we begin to ask how could this be leveraged? How could this be stewarded? How could this be laid down and given away for the sake of the flourishing of humanity, specifically the oppressed? Cruciform love turns the bow towards itself. And in the meantime, if there's nothing else practically that can be done at the moment, then we continue to listen. 
to the cry of the oppressed. We continue to learn from those whose understanding and experience of human history is much different than ours. We continue to lament with the broken heart of Jesus over the state of humanity in our world. And we repent of the brokenness within our own hearts as well. And we continue as those who grieve with hope to protest, to stand with the oppressed, not letting the injustices of the world be minimized or forgotten any longer. And so in this story, we get a vision of a radically different kind of God. A God full of grace, a God full of mercy, a God who's known for saying, even though. And a God who turns the bow towards himself in sacrificial love, calling lost, broken, evil, rebellious people like me to find life in his son. And just like Noah and his family were saved from the flood inside the ark, you and I are saved from our sins inside Christ. United together into one person with him. He is in us. We are in him. We are his body. He is our king. And he says, come, church. Join me in my life. Join me on my mission. Let me teach you how to relate to the Father, our Father, the way I do. Let me show you how to love not just each other, but love others, even love your enemies the way I do. And it's not going to be easy. It requires a cross. It requires a backward bow. But this is the life that I've called you to. In just a moment, the band will come and lead us in a time of response. And Jarrell will come and lead us in what Jesus would later call a sign of a new covenant, the Lord's table. Father God, we are so grateful for the life that you have given us in your son. That you have spared us. You have saved us and you are continuing to save us. We thank you that you haven't given up on humanity, that you haven't given up on the world, but that in your great humility and mercy, in Christ we find a co-suffering God. A God who looks out not for his own self-interest, but lays down his life in love for others. Jesus, we receive that love again. And Jesus, we want to learn how to love like you. Would you help us this morning?
by your spirit, would you gently convict us of the places where we continue to self-center, to self-protect and liberate us by your love to give our lives away for the sake of your name and your kingdom. Amen.